Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 43rd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Sanctuary Sites, Traveling While Black. I'm joined by Candace Taylor, the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. The publisher is Abrams Press. Candace is an award-winning author, photographer, and cultural documentarian. She's been a fellow at Harvard University under the direction of Henry Louis Gates, Jr., and her projects have been funded by organizations ranging from National Geographic to the National Endowment for the Humanities. Her work has received media coverage in numerous places, including PBS NewsHour and The New Yorker. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So help us out. Give us a sense of the book, kind of an overview as you would. Well, Overground Railroad was a book that I wrote to really talk about the Green Book, but to also talk about the state of America in a time when we're dealing with so many different ramifications and realities that affected uh, the time when Black people were not allowed to go into restaurants. So things like mass incarceration and redlining and urban renewal and different policies that have shaped this country throughout over the last hundred years um, really shaped the times then as well. So the book really looks at how America has shifted from the 1930s until the present um, through the lens of the Green Book. Okay. Um, let's just help out listeners a little bit. The movie, The Green Book, from just, what, a year or two ago, is maybe for some people a frame of reference. What would you say that movie um, got right and what maybe was, uh, you know, got the Hollywood treatment and maybe got distorted or important details got ignored or overlooked? Well, The Green Book movie was really very confusing to me. I don't understand why it was called Green Book because it had very little to do with the Green Book. I mean, the Green Book was only mentioned really three times in the book and um, or in the movie. And when I I did an interview with um, somebody at ProPublica where we really looked through each scene um, when the Green Book was, was addressed, and unfortunately they didn't do their homework uh, because – Say, for instance, in the 19, when Dr. Shirley goes to to the, uh, they put him in a hotel because he can't stay in the white hotel that um, Tony, his driver, stays in. So they, they're in Birmingham, Alabama. It's the early 1960s. And they go to this hotel that is very downtrodden. This is supposedly the hotel that he could find in the Green Book. And had the filmmakers done their homework, um, they would have seen that he, they would have taken him to the A.G. Gaston, which was a premier, one of the top 
Black-owned hotels in the South. It was where Dr. King stayed. It was where a lot of the um, Black social elite stayed. And it would have been the perfect choice for him because that's the world that Dr. Shirley was accustomed to. So there were decisions that were made like that that were unfortunately, again, um, seemed to hang on the stereotypes that Hollywood continues to, um, to make these same mistakes of, well, if it was in the Green Book, it must have been a you know place where only black people could stay, and it probably wasn't very nice. And um, and and that's not true. I mean, there were so many high end places in the Green Book. The, the Waldorf Astoria was in the Green Book. Um, there were high end white places, you know, white owned um, establishments. So that was, I think, it was a missed opportunity. And what was the most um, unfortunate about the fact that the, this big movie came out and it won an Oscar and it got all this attention and it was very controversial, as many people probably remember. Um, there were so many people who loved it and other people who hated it. And for the most part, the, it wasn't a bad film. The performances, I thought Mahershala Ali was amazing and the performances were good and it was a buddy film and it was really a, a film about a friendship between two men. Um, and it should have just been called something else. <laughs> sure no that's that's all fair enough uh you in contrast definitely did your homework um you you, s- you mentioned scouting nearly five thousand green book sites H- how many miles did you drive and how much time did it take you to do all of this considerable uh you know cultural collection you know i've estimated i've driven over fifty thousand miles i took about seven trips during this time i started the research in 2013 um, the book came out, you know, this year in 2020. So it really did take that much time. And I'm still doing the field research, honestly. I scouted over 5,000 sites, like you said, but I've cataloged over 10,000 green book sites. Um, so I'm still, and I'm developing a mobile app. So I'm still doing this work, but I had to stop at some point because I knew I'd continue researching the book for another 10 years if I, if I could. Um, but I knew I had to get the book out there. So I just got a good sampling. I thought of what would be indicative of, you know, the reality of, um, what was available to black folks at that time. Sure. So let's, let's go into some of your favorite sites. There's a lot of really important serious, you know, information here involving incarceration rates and urban renewal. And I, I definitely want to get to those things, but Maybe on the slightly lighter and more celebratory side, let's let's start with some of your favorite sites that are still standing because only what maybe five percent of them are still in operation. Um, but I'd love to hear about some of those still available that people could go see themselves. Yes, there are so many great green book sites that um, that you can see, and Los Angeles is a city where there were about two hundred and twenty four green book sites, and I believe between Los Angeles and New York, those are the two. Uh, New York City are the two cities where there's the most um, green book sites still operating. Um, but the Dunbar is a place that is great. It's in the south, uh, it's in South Central Los Angeles on a tree lined street. There's a great restaurant that just opened up. Um, today it functions as a uh, senior housing, um, but the building, it's this old Spanish um, colonial architecture. It's just, it's got this beautiful atrium inside when you go in. And like I said, there's a new restaurant downstairs, but the Dunbar originally did have a a beauty shop and a liquor store. And it was a place where it was a hotel 
It was one of the first black owned hotels um, in the country by a man who was a dentist um, who got sick of being thrown out of hotels. So he built his own and Billie Holiday and Duke Ellington and all the greats stayed there. And there's just, this, it just oozes history. So I love the Dunbar. Um, and there are others as well. Uh, sure. Maybe one or two other favorites, New York, other places, whatever you might want to choose. Yeah. I think the Hampton house, obviously in, in Miami, um, it has undergone an incredible renovate, like $10 million renovation. And it was featured in a new movie that um, one night in Miami. Is that exactly? Yes. Okay. And it really captures the essence of all the history that was that was there. The Hampton House was a place where um, Muhammad Ali was proselytized by Malcolm X. He walks in as Cassius Clay and leaves as Muhammad Ali. That's how the story goes. Um, King apparently. Uh, practice his I have a dream speech there. They have beautiful photographs of King swimming in a pool. Um, all of these things that, you know, these these giants of civil rights history um, were there and they were hobnobbing and they were part of, you know, there, it was just the elite again of these beautiful, you had to be dressed to be, to have dinner there. It was, it was wonderful. And they've restored the Hampton House to what it used to be like. It's a very mid-century, modern, beautiful architecture and really well-preserved. This place was going to be demolished. It was had been abandoned for decades, and so it was in really terrible shape. And it was the preservation efforts were spearheaded by this one woman, Enid Pinckney, who remembered going there um, when she was younger, and she started this preservation, I think, in her 70s. So for so many reasons, I love that property, and I think it should be celebrated. Okay. Now, you had mentioned when we talked before this interview that there will be a uh, traveling exhibition going around the country, starting at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. Do you want to tell listeners just a bit about that? Because that's an ongoing effort, just as you mentioned, your work on this project is indeed not done. Yes. Um, I'm the curator and content specialist for an exhibition called Negro Motorist Screen Book. And it's being toured by the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service. Uh, their acronym goes as SITES. And the exhibition is it's about a 3,500-square-foot exhibit. It opened at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. And it will travel the U.S. for three years through 2024. Um, so we're very excited that, you know, even though, unfortunately, COVID is, is really... Um, been challenging um, in terms of uh, the launch. It launched earlier this year, um, but it will move to the Mosaic Templars Museum in Little Rock, Arkansas in May. So if, you know, listeners want to follow the exhibition, they're, they're either welcome to email me at taylormadeculture.com. There's a, um, if you go to my website, there's a guest sign-in sheet and I can give you updates. But also if you go to the um, to Negro Motor Screen Book, uh, Smithsonian. Um, if you Google that, you'll see the information about the tour. But it's hard for us to really know because, again, things have changed so much with COVID and dates. Sure. Are not, you know. Sure, but I, I love the fact that you're getting, I mean, there's the book and then there's the three-dimensional exhibit and you're working on mobile app and walking tours and digital interactive maps. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a wonderful project and 
Um, and, and it's a wonderful book. I want listeners to know that this is one of the favorite books that I've read, you know, for this podcast series. So let's start to, to deepen the picture a bit, because indeed we, we call this episode Traveling While Black, because it, of course, is reminiscent of driving while black and what happens to uh, black motorists and others, as we've seen so many times in the news in the last few years, and, and frankly, always in American history, unfortunately. So for me, as, as a reader of the book, um, and having been born in 1959, uh, I was shocked to realize that segregation was in full force across the country, you said in the book, uh, and other things like no tow services for black motorists and so forth. Can you tell me some of the, frankly, just blatant injustices and incredible narrow-mindedness that was in place uh, in the year. I mean, the Green Book started, what, 1936 was the first edition. Can you kind of set the, the larger landscape for us in which this was all happening? Right. Uh, there was, the Green Book started, like you said, in 1936, and it was started by a man named Victor H. Green. He was living in Harlem. Um, he was from Harlem, and he was a postal worker. And there was a huge riot in Harlem in 1935 um, in Harlem because Black folks were not able to frequent places. It, there was segregation happening. And so most people assume that, you know, the Jim Crow South was a place where there were problems. And the truth was segregation was pervasive throughout the country. There were sundown towns, um, which were all white towns, and they were all white on purpose. Um, and they were mostly pervasive in the Midwest and the North. At Northwest and in the West. And these were towns where if you, you could not be there and be black after 6 PM, sometimes they'd have a sign saying in word, don't let the sun set on you here, or they would ring a bell at 6 PM, um, alerting the locals, especially people who were domestics who were working in the town. That was their cue to leave. Um, there were recreational places that were very difficult to, you know, to access for black folks, whether, um, there were beaches where you, even if you could go to the beach, you couldn't, if you were black, you couldn't use the lockers. So sometimes black folks would have to, you know, they find out when they got to the beach and they may have to undress on the beach, which is, you know, already difficult or in, in the car and then come out and maybe their things were, um, laying on a, you know, a towel and they would go swim in the water and come back and their things had been either soiled or ruined or stolen. Um, there were these just, you know, humiliations and indignities that were happening um, constantly. So when you found a place in the green book, like Idlewild, which was like this black resort in upstate Michigan, where it was, you know, or Cars Beach in Maryland, um, where there were thousands of black folks hanging out, having fun, you know, James Brown would play or Ray Charles. And it was just, it was a place where you could finally just go and relax and not have to worry about it. I mean, there were beaches that had a, a thick orange rope in the water that would segregate the black yeah. swimmers from the white. So how would you know? <laughs> you know, yeah, it no, was, it's just unconscionable. It, it's so horrendous. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I thought Idlewild was was wonderful. I, I had no knowledge of that whatsoever. Uh, con in contrast, I, I had some knowledge of sundown towns and counties, but I didn't realize necessarily quite how pervasive and how much they were outside of the South. So you know, for for many of us, of course, Route sixty six is 
American mythology is the the open road, the go west, young man, young woman opportunity. But in fact, you you note in the book that Route 66 was quite treacherous. Can you say a bit more about that? Yes. Um, for instance, Route 66 had about 89 counties from started in Chicago, went to Los Angeles. Half of those counties were sundown towns. So that gives you one example of how in, in, incredibly um, stressful that may be because there was no list of sundown towns, mind you. There was no obviously no social media or websites giving you information about these towns. You just found out either through word of mouth or you just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But there were so many instances where, you know, once black folks got through the Ozarks, um, there was a, you know, say a drive-in cave that was a real kitschy kind of fun idea um, in Springfield, Missouri, the birthplace of Route 66. But in that drive-in cave, it was the Klan ran that, you know, they had their cross burnings in the cave. And again, this was a huge tourist site. And you may not know that if you were black, you really shouldn't be there. By the time a lot of uh, Route 66 travelers got to Albuquerque, um, they were exhausted and they were getting into car accidents because they really couldn't find adequate lodging um, for so many, you know, through so many states, especially through the Ozarks. Um, it was it, it was treacherous. And it was, uh, you know, the NAACP actually came out and said, well, you know, black motorists are having all these accidents because they're exhausted <laughs> and because there's no lodging, even in a place like Albuquerque, where nearly 100 um, motels and hotels lined Route 66, only about six of those places serve black people. And again, if you didn't have a guide or some kind of something to indicate where you would go, you would just find yourself going to place to place and being turned away. So that was a reality. Sure. And if you've traveled all day and you're exhausted to, you know, six out of a hundred is, is bad odds and takes a lot of extra time and stress out of you. Going back to Missouri just for a moment, you'd mentioned in the book that both uh, Missouri and Illinois were the worst for the sundown towns. And you've, a couple times in your answer just a moment ago, you mentioned uh, the Ozarks. I, I will uh, confess, admit, mention here that I, I taught college for two years at what's now Missouri State University in Springfield. And one of the reasons that would be so tough is that there was a horrendous race riot in 1906 on the eve of Easter. And as a consequence, most black people, perhaps quite wisely, uh, left for Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, basically any place else. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the Alberta Hotel, which you mentioned in the book, um, you know, isn't what it was then. Uh, I, I had no knowledge of it before I read what what was in the Green Book and in mm -hmm. your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very um, it was kind of just, I guess, parallel worlds. Right. There were so many people who, through nostalgia, remember a very different time and experience that Black people had. But again, I think it's so good to not just think about all the hard times and how egregious and how wrong these times were, but despite ev all the challenges that were up against Black folks, for them to still rise to the occasion in ways that were just unprecedented and have these vibrant communities that were with a lot of black owned businesses and excel 
and move forward in the face of racism anyway. To me, that's also just a story that, you know, is not often told in our troubled history of racial segregation. And so for me as a black woman who, you know, been traveling and and writing about this stuff for 20 years, um, it was very fulfilling for me to see the, just how successful um, and resilient and proud, you know, I could be of, of, of what we were able to accomplish despite all the, the hurdles and the obstacles. No, no, I'm, I'm so glad you raised that point because I was going to mention it myself, the resiliency, uh, the, the forbearance as well of putting up with these aff- affronts and indignities and still making progress and having the independent business. So yes, there, there is very much a, a positive story here, despite the, you know, effort at, you know, pervasive psychological tear. Um, you know, in the 1936-38 portion of the book, uh, you mentioned, for instance, this is just incredible to me, in Jim Crow states, it was illegal for a black motorist to pass a white driver. Yeah. I mean, that that's just astonishing. Let's go to something a little more positive from the 1939-40-41 editions. I think that's the first time in the book that you bring up the story about uh, S.O. dealers and Laura Spell- Spellman mm-hmm. Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. So there was an ally here that that helped Victor. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that story? Yes. Um, S.O. gas stations, which was Standard Oil, um, which is also ExxonMobil today, um, they were on the right side of history. And we, because other major gas stations, you could there was no guarantee that you would get gas as a black person unless you were at an SO station. And within, and I verified this through interviews as well. um, People said, you know, black folks who were traveling said, you know, if we could find an SO station, we knew we were okay. Um, There were other gas stations that may let you get gas, but wouldn't let you use their bathrooms. Um, And it was a very, you know, obviously a serious issue. There were a lot of garages in the green book and mechanics in the green book because they, there was so much difficulty getting service uh, for your car if you had a, if you, you know, ran into car trouble. But Esso was this incredible um, company. It was run by Rock, Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller. And he, they, at every level of that company, they not only served black people gas, they had black men franchising their own gas stations. There were black chemists in the company. They were an, Almost every level of the company, there were there were black employees um, with pensions, with good jobs, and we, you know, and I would ask myself, well, why was that? Why did they go out of their way to be so kind to black people and so fair? And I believe it was his wife, Laura Spellman. Um, she was uh, raised in a house that was on the Underground Railroad. Her parents were fierce abolitionists. And it was, I think she was a conscience of him. I really do. We don't have any proof of that, but I really believe that. I mean, Spelman College is named after them, um, the black um, HBCU. So that's how dedicated they were to these causes. And I think he couldn't be married to her and, and not do the right thing. And it really showed. Um, and and full circle, now ExxonMobil is actually sponsoring the Negro Motor Screen Book Exhibition. Oh, great. That's that's good news. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know the connection to Spelman College. And uh, yes, in the book, you mentioned that I think it was, what, more than a fourth of all the SO dealers were were black 
black owners. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's quite good. My uh, grandfather, by the way, my mom's side, ran a standard oil station uh, in Minot, North Dakota. And you mentioned that that was the only state for a long time in the Green Book that had no listings, which wouldn't be too surprising given the paucity of view, uh, visitors, r residents, and, and black you know, citizens in particular. Yeah, yeah. And also the letters I thought were really interesting to read about the reasons why they felt like they couldn't be listed in the Green Book. But yeah, North Dakota was a special state. <laughs> yeah, although it's, it's actually the first place where integration happened. Satchel Page played baseball for the Bismarck baseball team. Uh, so before Jackie Robinson, the first integrated baseball uh, team in America was actually in North Dakota. But Wow, I didn't know that. That's but, uh, not so much in the green book. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's go to some of the, the uh, other contextualizing things that you, you brought up here, because they're, they're really important and they add so much depth and importance to the book. So I want to give you a, a chance to, to pick among them and, and get some comments in here, because you talk, for instance, in going back to black ownership of these businesses and that resiliency. Uh, on the other hand, the lack of monopoly enforcement, anti-monopoly enforcement, uh, along with urban renewal were really two things that were uh, unfortunately instrumental both in in uh, in the closing down of a lot of these green book sites and also just the vibrancy economically of the the black community, not just economically, socially in every way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very, it was perplexing to, you know, the book is written chronologically to show the the green books and all the different things that we were dealing with as a society, especially in terms of race, but sometimes not always in terms of race, um, but that affected black people. And when towards the end of the book, you know, I started writing about after it was after the 50s, really after we saw Brown versus Board of Education, the tides were shifting. And a lot of these um, white owned companies that normally did want to serve black people just because they wanted more money. I mean, it would just made more sense to them <laughs> to have sure, yeah. more people. Right. Um, I think there was a, there was a push towards, okay, this is inevitably going to happen for the white owned companies and, and segregated, you know, places that really didn't want that to happen. They had their own shenanigans and, and other forces in play, which the book goes into, but it was government policies that really did shape the way the country operated and the way black folks were, you know, that was beyond Jim Crow. When you look at things like redlining, um, where there were, you know, because of the second wave of the mass migration um, was happening, the great migration was happening. And so you've got over about 1.5 million black people fleeing racial terror in the South. They're moving to these major cities like Detroit and, and Chicago and, New York and even Los Angeles and San Francisco. And, and you start seeing immediately that there are these redlined communities. So black people couldn't live in the same communities where white people were. And then they built freeways through the black communities in, this, in, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s with urban renewal. And I would go, when I was scouting these places, I would see where there may have been 20 green book sites there and now they've been replaced by a freeway. And so you look at the devastation that it created for, again, these, the vibe in the forties and the thirties and the forties and the early fifties, 
there was so much opportunity for these black entrepreneurs to really, they, these were self-sufficient, self-sustaining, successful neighborhoods. And when I went to them today, they were not essentially. I mean, whether it was in, I was in Chicago and, uh, you know, area of South side of Chicago, I've been Chicago 20 times. I love Chicago. It's one of my favorite cities. I'd never been to this part of Chicago where 53 people were shot that weekend in the neighborhood I was in. And I couldn't help but think this was not the future that Victor Green imagined. This was not the future that Dr. Martin Luther King was talking about. You know, they would be horrified at what's happened. And it's not that black folks can't get their act together. It's that these government policies really shifted and changed their the way that we are, they dehumanized us, but also took away the resources and things that we had built on our own to sustain our own communities. So yeah, when you put a freeway through and you demolish all the major businesses on the road, you know, on that, in that neighborhood, it, it changes it. And it's unfortunate that, you know, now we have mass incarceration and other things that are indicative of, um, of these policies and the deinvestment in these communities. So I just, I just could not write the book um, without addressing these, these major issues and really tying this history to today. No, no, I, I am so glad you did. And I said that adds so much depth to the book. I mean, I live in St. Paul part of the year and the Rondo neighborhood is one of those neighborhoods that was quite vibrant. Mm -hmm. It was the black community in St. Paul. And of course, where do they put interstate 94? Uh, connecting Minneapolis and St. Paul straight through the neighborhood. So I'm not sure how many Green Book listings there were in the Rondo neighborhood, but it's a good bet that the majority of them are gone because uh, what was its previous Main Street became, you know, Interstate 94. Um, the irony yes, is, yeah. is that when Black folks could leave, right, when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 64 and Black people conceivably could go to, say, the French Quarter and see the, you know, go to the different nightclubs there because they had been banned from that. They, they didn't go to the ones that were in the green book, you know, or they moved out of the community because they could live in different communities. Sure. Um, and it was a double-edged sword because it really did take away from the independence um, that we took so many decades to build. Um, and I think it, it's uh, in regards to the Hampton house, that neighborhood was also one of those critical places that, you know, was vibrant and now um, has been struggling due to poverty. Um, but I believe someone said, you know, it, we got what we wanted in terms of it, in terms of integration, but then we lost what we had. So it was not a win-win, unfortunately for us. Yeah. No, you, you mentioned in the book about 5% of the Green Book sites are still in operation, 75% are gone, and I take it the other 20% are, are kind of dormant? Well, yeah, there's so many that are in either in shambles that really need to be rehabbed. Um, there's, and I am working on a project with the National Trust um, and National Park Service. Um, to The National Park Service work I'm doing is to rewrite the context of, you know, people who do have these buildings that were green book, that housed green book businesses, but to change the way that the National Register works now is really prohibitive in terms of um, allowing smaller, um, especially people of color, 
who have these businesses who want to protect them to the National Register. There's so many criteria that are really not consistent with this history. So I'm, I'm rewriting the context so that it will really speak to this specific history and make it easier for us to save what's left. Because there's, a you know, the Ben Moore Hotel in, in Montgomery, Alabama, is um, has been sitting in, in shambles. And it is, again, one of those critical places where um, the Montgomery bus boycott was strategized there. Um, I interviewed Martin Luther King's barber. There was a barbershop in the first floor of that hotel, and it has been sitting, and it's just disintegrating. We could still save it, but it's been sitting like that for, for decades. And so there are these projects that I really want to try and preserve this history because these aren't just um, – it's not just related to the Green Book. It's related to – in addition to you know our civil rights history. Yeah, no, you, you, it's very commendable work. It's important work. Uh, the book, as I said earlier, is is a wonderful book. Uh, I want to thank you very much for your time, Canacy. Uh This has been Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, episode number 43, Sanctuary Sites Traveling While Black. My guest, Candace Taylor, the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, you can check out other episodes either by visiting my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network website where this podcast is listed under their special series programs. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, I've chosen a quote from Richard Wright, the black novelist, from 1941, not long after the Green Book started, where he says, we black folk, our history and our present being are a mirror of all the manifold experiences of America. What we want, what we represent, what we endure is what America is. If we black folk perish, America will perish. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.